Hello and welcome to the Penn Health X podcast. My name is Ryan O'Keefe and I'm a fifth year MD MBA candidate at the Perlman School of Medicine and the Wharton School. Today's episode is a conversation between Shope Uwuje, one of the VPs of Entrepreneurship and Ventures for Penn Health X, and our guest, Dr. Josh Makauer. Josh currently leads medical device investment as a general partner at NEA, one of the world's largest and most active venture capital firms. Josh is also the founder and executive chairman of Exploramed, a medical device incubator that's created eight companies over the past 20 years. In addition to his role at NEA, Josh serves on the faculty of the Stanford University School as an adjunct professor of medicine and is co-founder of Stanford's Biodesign Innovation Program, a unique training and educational program for multidisciplinary health technology innovation with trainees that has gone on to form 50 companies that has had an impact on over 2.7 million patients. Josh holds over 300 patents and patent applications for various medical devices in the fields of cardiology, ENT, general surgery, drug delivery, obesity, orthopedics, women's health, and neurology. He received an MBA from Columbia University, an MD from the NYU School of Medicine, and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from MIT. In this episode, Chopin and Josh discuss how he went from a music major to a prolific medical technology innovator and venture capitalist, and how each of the experiences he has had along the way has shaped his passion for technological innovation in healthcare. We also discuss the role clinicians play in healthcare innovation and his view of invention as a skill that can be learned by technical and clinical stakeholders alike. We wrap up by discussing his thoughts on how COVID may impact the medical technology VC landscape and a piece of advice for students interested in using technology to improve healthcare. Now let's get to our conversation with Chopin and Josh. Here with Josh Macauer, um, one of the co-founders of the Stanford Biodesign Program and um, founder of NEA and a number of other initiatives in the medical technology space. Um, so, uh, explore med, yes, NEA. Uh, <laughs> I found I'm a, I'm I am a general partner there, but didn't found it. It's forty year old uh, forty year old company. I would have had to. Founded it like as a, a teenager, so <laughs> didn't do that. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so yeah, let's let's just start off just by kind of can you offer us like a little bit of a glimpse into your background, maybe like your early life and education, and kind of how they might have influenced how you got to where you are now. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, my uh, my parents are both teachers. Uh, they are, uh, you know, for the most part, high school teachers, but done some college. My mom's sort of the biology expert, and my dad's in earth science and electronics, uh, and you know, sort of um, uh, astronomer. So, you know, our our dinner take a room at dinner uh, conversations were about earthworms and um you know uh, tectonic plates and things like that so that was how i grew up um you know and so i've always had a passion for teaching which they have definitely uh given to me um you know and i i uh i actually started my college career as a music major um really that was actually what was uh where I was oriented, and then very quickly, as I got into um, got into co- you know 
got into the flow of college, sort of realized that maybe I could do something more uh, impactful. Uh, found my way to engineering, um, so I uh, I transferred over into the mechanical engineering uh, pathway uh, at Case Western Reserve College, where I started, and then transferred to MIT after that, focusing on biomechanical engineering, and really just started to get really excited about that and fascinated by how the human body works and all that. Um, when I graduated, um, I really contemplated a couple of different pathways but I felt like the best way to understand how to fix uh, the human body or create things that are going to improve human health was to go to the source and become a doctor and understand uh, physiology and pathophysiology, patient care and all that. So I, I pursued a medical degree and, and went to NYU. Um, and that was a great, great foundation and all that, um, applying sort of an engineering mind to that. And as I was, you know, looking to move on after medical school, instead of pursuing a path of being a practicing physician, I wanted to take both my engineering and medical backgrounds and, and try to use it to create new technologies. And so I was really fortunate to get a job at Pfizer, uh, where I started in the, as a technology analyst in the business development department, technology development department. And ultimately, they gave me the opportunity to create my own little incubator. It really was the, I'd say, the foundation of what became the rest of my career. Um, we, we, I, I was lucky to be asked by um, the CFO at the time, who later became the president of Pfizer, to try to understand, you know, how is it that little companies can innovate and do so well and why when we buy them do they stop innovating and and what is different about their process inside of a big company versus a small company and I, I was given the opportunity to interview all the founders of the early stage companies that Pfizer had purchased and also interview the management teams of the companies that were then in the business and really look at the difference in their innovation processes and they were quite different. Um, and I would characterize it fundamentally by saying that the, uh, you know, as a startup uh, or as a to-be-yet-created business, the founders were focused on a problem, and they didn't have an idea of how they were going to solve it yet. They, were, they saw a problem in front of them and then tried to find the best way of solving the problem. And once they were, let's say, a balloon company that was treating uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, they saw themselves as a balloon company and then they went out to try to find other places that they could use balloons, which is a whole different way of doing it. And so the, the, what, what happened was as, as they sort of matured, they became more incrementalists and they were just looking at where can we apply what we already do rather than how do we solve an important problem that's out there. And so that Fundamental understanding uh, led me to create a process that originally we called Fresh Tech um, with a PF for Pfizer because Pfizer spelled with a PF, um, and um, and that and we had the opportunity to prove that that method could work to identify innovative ideas and solutions and inventions inside of Pfizer and created a few projects that um, made its way through the divisions, et cetera, as products. But ultimately, um, 
in 95, I left to take that process and use it to create new companies. I, I was just frustrated in the big company. So um, I started Explore Med in 95, um, which is a medical device incubator in partnership with NEA. And we started creating businesses. And I've still, in that business, Explore Med is still ongoing, still play an active role in inventing and creating new companies out of Explore Med. And um, along the way, um, have you know created some really exciting transformational technologies that have changed uh, urology care, you know, ENT care, um, uh, breast pump technology for women, and uh, a whole bunch of other, you know, others, including um, really an opportunity that's yet to get to the United States, but. Hopefully, we'll assume it's going to transform the treatment of early stage osteoarthritis. So, you know, it's been that's been a good ride. Um, NEA was my partner throughout. We've done a good job providing returns uh, on the investment that they've given it to us. And so, you know, about 10 years they invited me to be a, or sorry, 15 years ago they invited me to be a venture partner, which is an advisor to the fund. And then five years ago asked me to step in as a general partner. And I, I currently run the MedTech investing practice at NEA. Um, also along the way, uh, about 20 years ago, um, Paul Yock and I were sitting down over breakfast and he was sort of pondering, you know, how do we, how do we create a program that trains people in MedTech and how do we differentiate ourselves? And I shared a little bit about this process that I've created and really used for my entire career to create new companies. And he really thought that that could be a uh, really compelling fellowship program. And so he invited me in and, and I joined the faculty uh, at Stanford and created the bio design innovation program with Paul, that curriculum in the class over the years. And, Led led the, led the fellowship for a good five years before I handed it off to Todd Brinton. Um, and I still stay involved and mentor the fellows. It's a great it's a great program. A great program. The teachings have sort of spread internationally, and uh, it's really super awesome to see how applicable all those uh, principles are to you know a wide variety of problems and needs, and and also how it's propelled you know hundreds of careers. So I'm really excited about that. So it's a real great contribution to medicine and stuff. So I'm proud of that. So yeah, so that, so today I'm uh, still creating new companies and investing on behalf of NEA and, uh, and still mentoring uh, hopefully the next generation of uh, leaders like yourself uh, to go change the world. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Um... I've definitely just in reading about you and hearing what you just said now, gotten to understand your passion for innovation directly, but also passion for supporting innovators and being able to get through the entire process of coming up with an idea and really reducing it to practice and being able to have it be a product that gets into the market. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like in your motivation for founding Explore Med and Stanford Biodesign, what were so some of the kind of challenges you observe, whether it was at Pfizer or just kind of in general in like the entrepreneurial space around medical technology that really motivated you to say, we need like a way to specifically yeah. train, education, educate people and kind of going through this process. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the motivation for for teaching is to share the things that you have learned so that you can give that knowledge to others so that they can go apply it. And in a way, it multiplies the impact that you can have, you know, on the world, right? So, um, so to the extent, I mean, I think step one is prove that for yourself that whatever you know is actually valuable and, and actually working because otherwise you something that isn't that valuable. It wouldn't be that rewarding. Um, so I spent a lot of my career before getting involved with biodesign um, trying to prove that it, that the method was reproducible, could work, and, and work out a lot of the kinks. Um, so, you know, once it was at that stage, it felt like, okay, well, this is something that, you know, we should teach others. Um, and, uh, you know, I think all of us who are in the healthcare space, it's all about helping other people. It's all about improving the quality of life of others, right? And um, you know, uh, instead of I'm I'm a physician, but I don't treat patients directly. Um, but I can help a lot of patients by creating things that improve their lives. And if I train people to do that, then that's gonna help even more people because those people who get trained are gonna go do it. So. You know, um, it's all about the leverage, you know, to be able to make a big impact and, you know, as an individual and and, and sort of really sort of leave the world a better place than what you found it. So that's what it's all about for me. Definitely understand that. Thank you. Um, so just thinking about that and kind of your own experiences early on as a medical student and being around clinics and whatnot, what are some of the kind of ways in which you believe clinicians think that kind of lend itself to being an innovator and to kind of forward thinking? And what are some ways you think clinicians kind of fall short in being able to get very involved in these processes? So as clinicians, we are very fortunate to see firsthand all the things that don't work well. I mean, talk about being well positioned to, you know, just have the inspiration, uh, inspiration every single day when you go into work and, you know, this patient is going to struggle with this disease or you're frustrated that this drug only does so much and, you know, they're still not that happy, but they're better off. But, you know, we, we have so much of this in medicine, just so many compromises that we make. And there's very, very few cures. Um, I think in a lot of ways, you know, surgeons uh, can cure people. They actually can really, like, you know, take a disease out. Uh, but the vast majority of medicine is just sort of uh, ameliorating the symptoms and making, allowing you to get by. I mean, pure, pure cures are, are hard to find. And so there's still a lot of opportunity, right? So, so all physicians have access to that. What happens, though, for us, I think, is that when you come in every day, you know, you're, the barrage of constant flow of 
patients and whatever specialty you're working with in, you tend to go to, you know, go textbook, you know, okay, I see this, I treat this, I see this, I treat this, you know, so you, you, you get a little numb to the fundamentals of the problem and, and you don't, you're not seeing it anymore. And I think what's great about this particular training in biodesign for physicians is to be able to give, if they can possibly do it in their lifestyles, to be able to actually step back for a second, look at what the heck is going on and really ask some fundamental questions, um, then you really are in a very powerful place to actually invent something that can be that's why sort of getting this education of people earlier in their careers is so impactful because you realize that this is like this skill set. Um, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that everybody can be an inventor and an, um, if they want to be. I also believe it's a, it's, it's a skill set you, you can optimize and learn and improve upon like any, anything. Um, you know, uh, you may not be able to be uh, I'm sure that there are those that will be better at it than others, but everybody can do it. And, um, and so I think um, that's sort of the premise is that if you can learn the process and learn the skill set, then you can actually um, use it to, you know, advance new ideas. If that's something you'd like to do, it's, uh, it's available to you. And, uh, and so I think it, it, it really could be a fundamental part of it, medical education uh, going forward. Um, and I, in a lot of ways, it is. A lot of medical schools are offering biodesign programs in their textbook and stuff. So I think it's uh, I think it's part of being a physician. Um, you know, uh, in addition to your day to day patient by patient work, to think broader and uh, how do you take what you've learned and what you've seen and apply your diverse background to to this problem and maybe see things a little bit differently that would yield a solution that's never existed before. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think you you definitely hit on a point that I've noticed in your own kind of work and reading about you and something that I also kind of share a similar passion for as far as like invention being a skill set and right. people being able to address problems that are in their environment regardless of kind of what exactly the background is, like everybody has a capability of doing something about what they see, whether it's something that's related to medical technology or otherwise. So yeah, thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. Um, so, so to get a little bit into your own experiences, um, so you mentioned how just out of medical school, you um, got a job at Pfizer and this kind of innovation group. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe some of your medical school experiences and the transition to that position, because a lot of people kind of are hesitant to consider these types of alternative paths that don't involve residency and alternative training or additional yeah. training. So it, it'd be good to get a sense of what that might look like if you have this kind of different interest. Yeah. Well, there weren't a lot of role models when I did this. Uh, it could have been perceived as very risky, <laughs> you know, had huge student loans uh, from uh, medical school and undergrad. And instead of following the path into residency, I, you know, am going after some sort of career path that not many people have 
Stephen found, uh, and uh, and was harshly discouraged by the dean of my medical school. Um, he was very upset with me for for not <laughs> pursuing a, a, a traditional career. Uh, but you know, I think you have to follow your passion, um, and you have to just you have to just do it. I mean. I, I, you know, it's sort of a funny story because when, after medical school, I hadn't even found a job yet. And so to pay the bills, I was, I worked in a summer camp. <laughs> I think I was, I think I was like in charge of the music program or something at a summer camp while I looked for a job. So, you know, and they would be like, wait, did you say you're a physician? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so you know, you just have to go do it. Um, I would, uh, I would recommend anybody who wants to pursue this path, um, you know, just find a way to give yourself, you know, put yourself. I looked at everything. I looked at small companies, big companies, medium-sized opportunities. I mean, I was, I, I cast a very wide net. Um, and and some things came back, and some of it didn't exactly fit. And honestly. That first job at Pfizer was about being leveraging my engineering medical background to help the business development department figure out if they wanted to buy or sell something. Um, it wasn't like purely, it wasn't like the job that I ultimately was wanted, which was to be like an innovator. It was just, I just got myself in the door. I got myself to have some experience and um, and you have to take those steps but it was a job I was really interested in I thought I could learn a lot from so you know I would definitely recommend for those um, that are listening that are trying to figure out how do they get into sort of doing this kind of innovation thing I mean you got to get the experience somehow and, and find a way you know the analogy that I use with my fellows which uh, they, they have heard uh, probably more than once uh, is, you know, look, you when you get an education in something, that's your or. Right? It's like an or of a boat, right? That's what you get. This is what you're bringing, okay? And the boat is your career, right? And, you know, you want to go downstream, right? Uh, you don't just get to get a ride on the boat. No one's going to say, oh, come here and learn this thing. You have to bring something. So you're bringing your ore. You've invested in that ore, whatever it is. It's a background. It's a skill. You're going to get in that, and you're going to grow. So you. So I was bringing my medical degree. I was bringing my engineering. Degree. Those are how I got my foot in the door. It wasn't what I ultimately wanted to do, but that was my contribution. But once you're in the boat and you have an ore, you get an opportunity to see what's going on. Keep your head up. Look for those opportunities and and jump at them. I mean. You know, when the when when I was given the the ask of, hey, you know, you, you want you figure out this thing? Well, I could have been like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You know, never happened, right? I threw myself into that. I did my day job, but I did this other thing, and it turned out to be my whole career. Like I didn't know it at the time, but I was so fascinated by it. So I look for opportunities like that, and. and that's what I would just encourage other people to do is just look for those opportunities um, uh, and 
you never know what's going to come next, but you, you do have to get in. You have to bring your ore. You know, you have to be, it, you know, you may be hired to do something that you've done before. Okay, so be it. But that gets you in, get into an environment where you can learn something, catch an opportunity to do something extra, you know, find a mentor, find an opportunity, and, and that's what gets you the next opportunity and the next one. So that's uh, that would be my advice on that front. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. I think that's definitely a good point that you hit on there as far as being proactive about finding the next thing for you to kind of either learn something new or advance your career in some way, just kind of being aware of what's around you and how you can kind of contribute to and kind of take advantage of what else is kind of going on around you. So, um, so yeah, so you left medical school, got your job at Pfizer, worked there for a while, um, and then you went to business school and came back to Pfizer for a while before founding Explore Med. So can you talk about how your experience in business school might have kind of led you to make that jump into founding Explore Med and yeah. kind of what the vision was with that and how that kind of all happened, I guess? Yeah, sure, sure. I was working throughout business school, by the way. So I did the executive program. Um, I was very fortunate Pfizer paid for my education and, and uh, part of that deal was you come back and you apply it and you, you agree to stay on for a while and to have the company that paid for you to go benefit from it. And so I was really lucky. Um, it's, it, you know, I, I really lobbied hard for uh, the opportunity. It was, uh, it was not always uh, a sure thing, um, but um but I wanted to go to business school because, you know, being an engineer and a physician and then sitting around all these business conversations, I just didn't understand the language. Um, I didn't understand accounting. I didn't understand finance. Uh, a net present value did not mean anything to me. Um, a debit, a credit, uh, you know, I, I don't know, cash flow. I mean, it all were, were words that I, I really didn't. Uh, understand, you know, marketing principles. It just all, I just, it wasn't a world that I had ever come up with. Um, so here I found myself in business wanting to, and realizing that actually I need to know this stuff. Like if I'm just the technical person or if I'm just the physician, well, that's all I'm going to do. You know, they're, they're going to say, well, you're just the physician. You don't know about this uh, financial stuff. So stay out of the conversation. You know, just tell us if the thing's going to work. And I didn't like that. I, I felt like I, I needed to understand it. So I went to business school basically to be able to understand it. And that's what I got. Um, and I was uh, really fortunate to um, get the support from Pfizer to go do that. And, the, you know, I, I would say I am, I often say this, I'm like, a, I was a reluctant entrepreneur. I didn't, I did not have a personal mission to be a, a startup guy or an entrepreneur. I just wanted to create technologies that impacted people's health. I thought Pfizer would be a great place to do it. You got a pharma division, you got a device division, you got all this technology, all this money. You know, wow, it's like if I could actually have access to all those 
tools. Like, imagine all the things we could create. You know, like that's how. That's why I went to Pfizer because I thought that like this is like an amazing set of assets. Like, imagine if we can invent like how do we combine them and stuff. It was like two weeks in that I realized I, I proposed something like that, and they're like, "Uh, the device division doesn't." Are you crazy? They don't. They don't talk to each other. I'm like, really? They don't talk to each other? And and I and there's just all these reasons why. You know, it's like their own PNLs. You know, who's going to pay for what? You know, how, that's a risky thing. And all sorts and the risk aversion in big companies. So just one series of disappointments after the next. You know, so I, I eventually after business school and after you know. Being there with the business education now be part of my whole package. I just I just became frustrated. I felt like the the only way I could really do what I wanted to do was actually to be an entrepreneur because uh, you know that way I'm not constrained by all the conservative views of the big company. Um, that's how I wound up doing it. I, I never you know I I, meet, I have know a lot of students they all want to be entrepreneurs and ceos and stuff like that i had no interest in it um, it was not part of what motivated me i was really just motivated to do something and uh, and i found my way into that just because it was like i guess i gotta do it myself like i can't can't be in a bigger company and get done the things that i wanted to do so uh, i just wound up uh, as a result um you know, creating Explorer as out of frustration because I didn't think there was any other way to do it than just do it on my own. <laughs> yeah, that definitely, definitely a lot of points that resonate with me as well. I think um, just thinking back to um, this opportunity I had to listen to you when you came to MIT and you mentioned something along the lines of, if you give a problem to the catheter division of some company, right. the solution, no matter what the problem is, is gonna be a catheter. And that right. was something that's always kind of resonated with me as far as like how problem solving should be approached and how like large company like settings kind of restrict the kind of very, I guess, raw and like kind of open approach to what problem solving should be. So um, now thinking about ExploreMed, can you maybe talk about what the exact type of work you did with ExploreMed is and like maybe some yeah. of the highlights of the companies and whatnot that have come out of ExploreMed, some of your favorite experiences? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it, so I, my model at ExploreMed, so I have a few fundamental beliefs. One of them is always start with qualifying and specifying the need. Uh, that's obviously what we teach in biodesign, but it's like, we do that in explore. I mean, we won't do any project unless we really understand the need and we create that need spec. Every single time we create that need spec, we invest months and months in patient, physician, you know, clinical literature, just try to scope out what do we, what is the target that is not being hit today and what do we need to hit? And, and getting it down on slide or a piece of paper, like, here's the goal. This is what's not, and, and then we test it. Was it go to doctors and say, hey, if we did this, would that be, would, would that be exciting? Would that be transformational? And they go, oh yeah, it's not possible, but sure, you guys go try to figure out. Yeah, but, but sure, that would be amazing. Don't, that doesn't exist today. 
no idea how you're going to do it, but yes. Um, and then, you know, patience, you know, if we did this for you, if they, you could do it, well, oh, yeah, you know, we're in, you know. So when you get that validation, you know you're – and also scoping out, is this a big enough opportunity to make it worth it? Because these are high-risk, high-reward high things. If You, you know, you don't want to – I, at least, want to make sure whatever I'm going to do is going to make major, major impact. So it's market size. It's opportunity. So we're going to go after something that's big. Um, so that we can draw the resources and talent and all those things to it. Um, so it, it'll also look like a good investment opportunity too. So there's a parallel there. But um, uh, so that's the first fundamental tenet. The other te fundamental tenet is it's always a company is always all about the people and the founder role is really important. And so for that reason, I always partner with someone who I would say plays a role that I like to call the project architect. So, you know, and I think this relates to another principle, which is it's really important to know what your skill sets are, what you're good at, and what you're not good at. And to bring all the people who you bring into your team, be really good at the things that you're not that good at, so that together, you can really get there. And for me, I'm, uh, you know, I sort of see things differently. I can imagine, I have a very active imagination. I can like dream and see, uh, I can like say, ooh, what about this, you know? But I might not be the right person to exactly design the thing, right? I could put it on a whiteboard, but, you know, I'm not necessarily the one to get on SolidWorks and figure out how all the parts go together and what the materials are and how we're going to, you know, all that. I need somebody who knows how to do that, you know. Um, I understand the general overview of, like, how you would execute on a regulatory or clinical pathway or development pathway, but I am not the right person to run that project process. I need somebody who understands how to do all that. So the project architect is generally someone who has done it already. He has taken, he or she has taken a uh, project from concept to commercialization a, com a couple of times. They may not be an inventor or let's say the primary inventor, but they know how to get stuff done. They know how the, from the design to the testing to the to the in moving into manufacturing, like that skill set, sort of like a VP of R and D skill set or a director of R&D skill set is what I'm looking for in project So the project architect comes in and we, our little team, which is really small, it's like three people, uh, together with project architect, uh, and that team is like admin, you know, an administrative person who oversees finance and you know, make sure the bills get paid and make sure the health, everybody has health care, you know, uh, make sure the phones are answered, uh, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And then um, I've got a great partner uh, who's uh, the president of ExploreMed now, now that I'm over at NEA, um, Ed Bright, who's a really multi-talented guy as well, an engineer, patent attorney, um, you know, a very seasoned, great, um, you know, person. And uh, so that's sort of the, the group. And we put the project architect together with us, and then we go uh, after something. And so we start with, okay, 
what do we want to work on? Um, and we sort of, and, and sometimes it's inspired by, you know, my aunt or my father or my brother has this issue and it was really a bad experience. How do we make that experience better? Um, you know, and go, okay, well, let's go learn about, let's go learn about it, you know, and take a fresh approach. And, uh, and so that's the story, you know, in the case of the Clarent, which is our ENT company, it was inspired by me personally suffering with chronic sinusitis for many years and being like, there's got to be a better way uh, to address this disease. It's just like, uh, I mean, it's horrible. And uh, how do we make it better? Um, you know, in the case of uh, Willow, um, which is our wearable breast pump, uh, literally John Chang and I were sitting in the office and he had just started. I'm like, okay, what do you want to work on? He had been talking to his wife and, you know, uh, they were, the conversation was, you know, why don't you guys just do something good for moms? So it was like, how about we do something good for moms? I'm like, I love it. Let's do something good for moms. <laughs> I love it. Let's go. Let's talk to moms. Let's figure out what is really the pain points about being a mom. And we just, you know, listened and prioritized. And they, they prioritized for us. It's like breastfeeding and breast pumping is like the worst thing ever of being a new mom. It's like that's the worst. Totally. And, you know, pumps or this and that. So that's where that inspiration comes. I mean, like, I, I, you know, people are like, well, what's your next idea? What are you going to come up with? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I don't just invent stuff, you know. I use my process. Uh, you know, I don't, things don't, I mean, yeah, sometimes I see a need and they'll be like, huh, there's got to be a better way to do that. But I don't usually go after those because, uh, you know, that's like two seconds of an insight. And I, don't respect my ability to have the right idea with that type of an insight. I invest myself in this need finding process. You know, it's, it's a process. It's like a job. And I go spec this thing out because you're, you know, as, you know, humans, we are trying, you know, we always want to go to a safe place. You know, we don't like being out in this uncertain place. You know, we want to go to get shelter. We want to, you know, but, but, if you can suspend your desire to get to safe and just go into the uncertainty and understand the full dimensions of it, of what, you know, what is this problem? What do we know? What do we don't know? What, how would we, like, what would ideally be the right outcome here? Let's write this down, you know? What about this? What about that? How much did it cost? You know, all this kind of stuff. It's like that is what needs to be figured out before you can start inventing. Because you, know, you might you know, I'd say, hey, I got a great solution for that. Well, that's just that one line in the need spec. Does it solve all the other criteria? Have you even thought about it? And then the problem is that once you come up with one of those ideas, you just can't get it out of your head. Like it's always, and then you're, then you're biased. Now you're trying to justify this first idea that you had and try to make it fit, you know, so, so you're now approaching the process in a in a biased way, and that's going to lead you down a, down a bad path. So what I, you know, do myself is just discipline myself. It's like I am going to not think about ideas. I am going to focus on what this problem is, and 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 then when 
the problem fully reveals itself in all of its dimensions, stakeholder needs, clinical needs, um, you know, financial needs, et cetera. And I have it all there. And then I'm starting event. Then I know it's okay. I didn't get that one. That's probably not going to work. What about this one? Okay. Well, mm, these criteria probably not. And then you, and you do that with other people. You invent, you know, as a, you know, as a group. And so I've always co-invented with people. Um, and I get a lot of stimulation from, you know, bouncing ideas off of people. So that's, that's my process. So, um, that is how every single company has been created. Um, and often the insight comes after failing a whole bunch of times. And uh, I can tell you the story of, I mean, I, almost half the companies, we, we had an idea, we went and did it, and very quickly we knew we had failed because of our need spec. We, we, we had the benefit of, no, of being able to ask a question that you might not even ask, ask up front. You might, you might not find out to the end of the clinical trial, but we could see that that wasn't going to work. Um, other times things just plain old didn't work. I mean, it, you know, just not every idea works. Um, but you have to pick yourself back up and sort of say, all right, well, what do we learn from this? And, and that's the other thing is on the heel, sort of two lessons. One is do not, do not accept, uh, the failure as just, okay, we lost, let's walk away. What can we learn from failure? What, what is the, what does that failure teach us? How do we take that unique insight now that we have failed? understand why we fail and then go back and reinvent again. Now, now we have a new, we, we established a new criteria that wasn't obvious that nobody knew before. We're now one step ahead, even though we failed, like how do we take that failure and translate it into something? So that's, uh, it, you know, anyway, so just to give one example, sorry for this very long one. No worries. Uh, you know, the, one of the best, Examples of this is uh, Neotrack, where we, um, so benign prostatic hypertrophy, you think cells growing, this packed gland, growing, growing gland, it's stretching that outer capsule, it's kind of constrained within this capsule, now so constrained it's pushing down on the urethra, creating all this resistance, and so we thought, okay, here's an idea minimally invasive. Let's go in, think of it like a chestnut, right? Got this chestnut growing, pressure, pressure inside, totally restrained by this outer capsule. It's really thick. We knew about that. Why don't we just go in and we just slice, take a little blade, maybe RF blade so it doesn't bleed, and just slice the outer capsule, release it. So like popcorn, just open up and release all the pressure inside so that the urethra would not be under pressure and so you reduce the resistance. We want to do that instead of going inside and scraping out the inside because that's a, that's a transurethral section that has lots of issues, impotence, incontinence, um, you know, bleeding, uh, other complications. Uh, so we wanted to avoid the terp. We wanted to avoid that that scraping out of the interior of the prostate because it has so many complications. So here's one that doesn't even go into the uh, urethra at all. It's on the outside, and we went and tried that. But then we're like, well, how do we know if it can work if until we get to cut? Well, let's see if we can answer the question on the cadaver. So we put a balloon inside the inside of the urethra in a cadaveric 
prostate that we knew patient history was BPH. Blew up the balloon to a minimum amount of pressure so that we could see how much pressure we released. So we blew up that balloon um, under fluoroscopy. And then we started with on the outside with a very fine blade and we just started take away layer after layer. We took it off and no change in pressure. We took another layer off. Another layer of fashion that kept on going. No change in pressure. And then finally, we took the last layer off, which was the urethra. The urethra opened up, blew and expanded, pressure went away. And so that wasn't good. <laughs> Cut through the whole prostate until you get to the urethra and open up a bit. You know, that's a disaster. And so fail. Uh, bad idea. Um, and we didn't, you know, so we didn't have any other ideas at that point. But we were looking at all the data, and what we noticed was on the fluoro that the balloon had – the reason why this happened was when we inflated that balloon inside of this prostate, it it totally became huge. It tilled the entire space. In fact, the entire massive prostate, that big gland that we thought was adding all this pressure, had gone into a couple of millimeters of thickness inside the prostate. We're like, well, what happened to BPH? Like, what happened? Where, where's all this tissue going? Like, what, what is that? And um, what we realized was a couple of things. Prost BPH prostate is incredibly compressible. Huh. It's incredible. How could that be? What about this tumor-like thing that we thought we were releasing? You know, like, how could that happen? Right? So then it was like, well... Well, why is that? Well, let me thought a little bit more about it. I said, wait, let's look at the histology. There's a lot of glandular space. There's a lot of vascular space. In fact, the prostate is mostly space. Those spaces, there's not a lot of tissue, you know, in the, your average BPH prostate. So then we're like, huh, highly compressible, right? Amazing. Like, so... You know, we know that stents work in the prostate, but stents have all sorts of problems with incrustation, migration, all that stuff. Is there a way now? Is there a way for us to compress open the prostate without presenting a lot of foreign body to the urine so that it doesn't encrust? Like, is there a way to do that in a durable way? And that's where we came up with the clip for your. Basically, you said, okay, what if we like like a curtain, take a little tab and pull each lobe of the prostate up like a curtain and open up the flow and just maybe pin it to itself, pin it to that outer capsule so you create that little tight junction and open it up without taking any prostate because it's so compressible and that's that's what Urolift is and that's how we came up with it. But it's a great example of how on the heels of failure an insight reveals itself and then you take advantage of that insight and create something that um, no one would ever expect it to have worked. So that's, uh, and I can, you know, every single, uh, not everyone, but the majority of the companies had some pivotal failure event that led us to an understanding that was unique. And that, because we didn't, weren't going to give up, we kept on going, we were able to translate that into. Yeah. I, I, that, I think that's a great story that seems to really capture the spirit of both Explore Med and Biodesign as far as 
learning quickly, failing quickly, really understanding the problem and understanding that there's insight to be gained from every single kind of experience you have along the whole innovative process and being, taking advantage of those learnings to really get to a very specific and useful solution. Exactly. Just to kind of transition a little bit and talk more about uh, your work with NEA and uh, kind of in the venture capital space, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about kind of what venture capital looks like in the medical technology space? What, what does venture capital look like in general just for people who are in healthcare or yeah. maybe an MD who might be interested in VC? What, what exactly could that look like? What should uh, MDs maybe consider if they want to explore VC as a potential career option? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, uh, I'm biased in this regard, and uh, I'll say um, there are a lot of people who do not agree with me. So I'm going <laughs> to give you my point of view on it, but, uh, you know, consider it an end of one. Um, you know, I sort of believe, like, it's really valuable to have operating a good investor. Otherwise, you're really, you're taking a lot of bet, uh, bets without necessarily being fully make judgment. I mean, I think in, at least for medical devices, we're operating experience is so important. Uh, and it isn't just about some, you know, pure, pure science, like, like, um, let's say biotech. I think, I think in the field of biotech, which I, you know, sort of molecules and cell behavior and stuff like that. I think a lot of that can be modeled on the, on, you know, in a Petri dish or animals. And it, it's a lot of science uh, that probably does not require a lot of operating. I mean, once you get a drug that works, it's not that hard to figure out how to take it from there. Whereas with devices, you can usually prove that the thing works. I mean, very little money, relatively quickly, it's sort of obvious. Then the question is, how do you get it to where you need it to go? You know, that's where the heavy lift is. So I think if in medical devices, I actually think operating experience is, is essential. It's really important. Um, so, you know, if, if there's an idea of wanting to be an investor, um, I sort of recommend that because that's hard to do otherwise. The other, um, the other thing to, that is important is to understand how to, you know, read and understand and work with people. Um, because at the end of the day, people are what's going to make the difference in terms of success and failure. I mean, the, the experience and, um, you know, ethics and um, judgment of the people who are running the company are, are really what you're betting on. I mean, the thesis of the project has to be right. But, you know, if there aren't, you know, those kind of folks running the business, probability of success is low. There's a lot of people stuff there too. Um, I, it, the work of being a venture capitalist versus uh, an entrepreneur are very different, but there are some things that overlap. Um, I think when you come to the role of a investor and venture capitalist as an operator, you're probably able to bring just a little bit more to the table because, you know, you make these investments, but the real work is what happens in between the, the checks being written. And if all you're bringing is a good understanding of uh, 
you know, the why you invested, that may not be enough to really be a, add a lot of value. And, it, you know, for me, from an entrepreneur standpoint, when, you know, when I, before I would have gotten into venture capital myself, I would always really want to draw people who had lots of experiences. Um, and they could be financial experiences, um, but but just like, but if they're financial experiences, I'd love for them to have been on a lot of boards, seen a lot of stuff, be able to tell me like, hey, here's how it normally looks, you know. So I think um, it is an impress apprenticeship type experience. You can get it by, you know, working your way up a firm for many years uh, with lots and lots of entrepreneurial, you know, sitting on boards and being a fly on the wall and learning and seeing, that's one way to do it. The other way is to, to come in as an operator. And, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a business of um, backing people and ideas and then helping them in, in any way you can to be successful and hoping for the best. It's very, it's a very hard business. It's hard to know what the answer to a clinical trial is going to be before it's run. Uh, and what, what competitive efforts are going to come out of the woodwork, how regulatory or reimbursement landscape is going to change on you. So it's, uh, you know, in some ways I do feel like being an entrepreneur, you have more control of your own destiny. I think as an investor, um, you're somewhat of the mercy of the judgment and leadership of the of the folks running the companies. Um, but I think, you know, the best situation is where you, you know, you can bring something to that and together you're all part of the same team. So that's how I always look at it. And I, I love working closely with my teams and trying to, trying to help in any way I can. And I think I can bring a lot um, based on my experience to any of these opportunities. So I think that sort of differentiates, uh, you know, VCs, and, and I try to do the best job I can to help um, help the entrepreneurs that I'm working with and choose projects that are really going to impact the world. You know, still still on my mission. Um, so, I, uh, you know, this is very aligned with that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's still with the goal of trying to do something good in the world, even a better place. And... Um, and at the same time, you know, do what's necessary to get an opportunity to do it again, which means returns for investors and and uh, and not losing their money. Yeah, exactly. Thank, thank you for that answer. I think it's um, for, I guess, a lot of students like my peers and like people who are perhaps early on in their clinical training, it's tough to get a good picture of like what your involvement might look like in VC or what your involvement might look like in uh, technology entrepreneurship or whatever kind of path. So thank you for kind of painting that picture. Yeah. Um, so two quick questions to wrap up. Um, I'm wondering kind of what your perception is of the current state of medical technology VC. So like if someone gave you a very large chunk of change to invent, invest in something now, like what are those areas that are kind of going to be the next big thing? And how has everything that's been going on with uh, COVID perhaps influenced what that direction is? Right. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, uh, so, 
again, everybody approaches this differently, and I'm not saying that my my way is the right way. Um, but I'm not a I'm not a thematic investor. Uh, I am always looking at every opportunity in its own right. And in fact, I'm more inspired and excited about the thing that nobody's even paying attention to and isn't like a thing. And my track record is being really successful at that. In fact, I love it when the crowd is running in this direction and those are the themes that everybody thinks are the things to go after. And then I spot this other thing over here that no one's paying any attention to and sort of, you know, somewhat overlooked or everybody gave up on it and thought it's never going to, nothing ever is going to be successful there. Like that's what I love to go after. So, and, and I, and the reason why I love it is because I can work there for like a couple of years, building something, testing it, getting it really good. And still no one's paying any attention to it. So like, I, I, I like, I don't like competition. I'd rather work, I'd rather work on my own. And, you know, yeah. and then once once people like go, like, wait a second, wait there, you know, like I'm years ahead. I love it. So that's my, you know, this. So if there's a theme, I'd say, you know, there's always a pack mentality. Everybody wants to be a follower and follow and not make a mistake and just do what everybody else is doing. I said, just don't do that. Do what inspires you. Find that opportunity that is really exciting and big. That no one's paying attention to, and seems like a like a orthogonal place to go. So that's that's what I would say. Like uh, my advice is um, choose those because when when those like come into favor, you're way ahead. You know. So COVID, I think, is um, got a lot of people chasing after it. Um, I think there's a lot of important things to do. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, and if I if I had an idea, if I had some insight, I would absolutely try to do what I could to um, be helpful. And we have some of our companies are doing are doing just that, like where they can be helpful in whatever way they've actually changed their strategies to do that. Um, but, you know, and I ha I'm not in a in my cycle right now. This is not a moment where. We are we're actually executing on an idea of trying to push our our company out that we you know so I'm not in an open mode of considering new projects but if I was right now sure I would absolutely look at it um, but I would caution to say that like there's a lot of people already looking at it a lot of them are far down the road already there's some, hopefully some great therapies coming um, and the and the technologies that are out there that have, that are adaptable are are being adapted. All that stuff is good. I think outside the box about either what's next after this all gets solved and how does the world look like, like there, or just like what's getting left behind, like what are we forgetting that's off to the left or the right. Those would be the places that I would naturally go. Because, um, you know, I don't, I don't like uh, being the herd. <laughs> I like being out. open field, blue water, no sharks. <laughs> I can definitely, definitely understand that sentiment. Uh, just for one last quick question, since we're running into time here. Yeah. Um, so for students like me who are early in their kind of exposure to medicine, health technology, all that stuff, and kind of wondering how they can 
best position themselves or what they should be learning about or thinking about if they really want to use technology to make an impact on healthcare. What's like one piece of advice as far as something you think students can be thinking about, learning about, getting involved in that could kind of position yeah. them in order to make the most impact on healthcare with technology going forward? I would just say get some real experience. Do an internship, um, take whatever time you have in the afternoons or whatever, and spend some time in companies. Um, you know, do whatever you can to just do that because that's going to get you job opportunities, going to get you experience. Um, yeah, I, I, that's my advice. I mean, when I, you know, when I see a C, you know CV come in from someone who's graduating and they spent a summer, you know, Medtronic, and then they spent a summer. Uh, you know, doing this project over here or that, you know, just like take advantage of the fact that you're a student and that you aren't going to be that expensive and that you could practically work for a minimum wage or whatever it is, you know, just to, like go for the opportunity if you can and get get exposed. Because um, I think those that exposure is going to give you relationships that you'll be able to leverage and and also give you experiences that they're going to leverage. So that's that's my advice is just and don't you know don't set too many high criteria on it. It's like right now it's about getting out there and doing anything. You know I uh, have done that. Um, I would I've done it during my early career. I would you know all those things and uh, and it served me well. You know um, and uh, and it brought me the next opportunity. So just look at it as a stepping stone. And uh, that'd be my advice. All right. And with that, I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Absolutely. Good luck. Good luck to you. And uh, I hope to uh, see you again sometime. All right. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our generous donors, Dr. Wong, Dr. Slevin, Dr. Anand, and Dr. Wills. For more information about PennHealthX, check out our website, PennHealthX.com. There, you can also find our blog, where we write about the events we host and the lessons we learn from speakers. To get in touch, you can email PennHealthX at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for future episodes. See you then.